Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Okay, drama. There was a telenovela's worth of drama on that US squad in those final critical six months before the World Cup. Yeah, the team had qualified for the tournament, but they'd done so later than anyone had expected. Coach Steve Sampson, he feared for his job. The US was actively, constantly, occasionally rather brazenly, courting his replacement. And a little desperately, he began benching the star players, Alexi Lalas and Marcelo Balboa. And of course, the previously untouchable team captain, John Hawks, ditched. Which widened the wedge between himself and his experienced veterans. During this period, there was one other bit of drama. It unfolded on stage at a packed stadium in Marseille in front of a TV audience of half a billion people. I'm speaking, of course, of the draw. You've got a one in three shot of opening against the team that we have kind of pegged as the World Cup draw. It's sort of like one of those Powerball drawings that you see on your local TV stations. Only instead of lottery numbers, someone's drawing little plastic balls that contain the names of each of the countries. And those little plastic balls determine the matchups for the World Cup's first round, the group stage. The United States now waiting breathlessly to see when they'll be drawn. Did you cover the draw on air? Yes, yeah, I was there. That's Bob Lee, the ESPN anchor. Germany's group will be drawn, so the US really does not want their number to come up here at all. Will it happen? There you go. So, there's Etazuni, the United States in Group F against Germany. Germany. The reigning European champions. Three-time World Cup title winners. The single most consistently ruthless organised team in world football. Think Darth Vader in cleats. And one that was far better than New Mexico's, Costa Rica's, or the other regional rivals that the US had toiled against over the past three years. Yugoslavia. Next one is Yugoslavia. It is a nightmare draw unfolding for the U.S. national team. Which is a great team. A very strong Yugoslavian team. And we are currently bombing them. U.S. Soccer's Secretary General, Hank Steinbrecher. <laughs> so I'm thinking this is going to be whirlwind of warfare. And then... It was down to the last That's ball. All that was. And Joe Blatter holds in his hand the, the U.S. Uh, final the team. Iran. Iran. Well. Islamic Republic of Iran. Well, well. Oh my gosh. Are they kidding? Iran? Can you imagine? So there it was. The good news was the U.S. now knew who they'd face in the first round of the World Cup. The bad news was that it was Germany, Yugoslavia, and then Iran. One of the countries they'd fought two world wars against. Jeremy Schapp of ESPN. One of the countries they had had the hostage crisis with, and the other country we were basically at war with as well. A rather worried Hank Steinbrecher. It's like the worst draw in war. Go, can you pick a bit a worse draw than that? I think Alan Rothenberg said at the time the only way it could have been worse was if there was Iraqi referees for every game. <laughs> <laughs> but that's true. 
Each election season, political memoirs abound, doorstops that sometimes divulge more than intended. No matter how diligently they present themselves in the most electable light, they always reveal themselves, their insecurities, their fears, their ambitions. How to read a Politico on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Roger Bennett. This is American Fiasco, a show about how three years of hard work, international travel, and swaggering self-confidence can all be erased by three little plastic balls. The ball that was the most problematic was the one that contained the name Germany. It led coach Steve Sampson to tinker obsessively with lineups. He also made the team stop playing in a new, rare, deeply complex formation called the 361. We'll talk more about that later. But for now, know it relies on speed and on buy-in from players. Two things that are in short supply on this squad. So Steve, he went looking for a different kind of player. Yes. This is Roger yes. Bennett. Oh, how are you doing? Oh, thank you. This is David Regis. He actually pronounces it Regis. And you're going to hear a lot of people butcher his surname on this podcast. But it's Regis as he's become best remembered in U.S. soccer history. Where are you living right now? Oh, Luxembourg. I live in Luxembourg. Oh, Luxembourg. Come on, tell yeah. vous Come on, tell vous Oh, je veux bien, merci. Oh, listening back to this, I realise not only am I the guy that mispronounces foreigners' surnames, I'm also the gent who yells over-enthusiastically at people who don't speak English. Now, back in 1997... Reiji was a seasoned pro in the German Bundesliga and he came on Samson's radar because he was married to an American and he wanted to become a US citizen. Reiji grew up on the island of Martinique, a tiny French territory in the Caribbean. I come from a little village where we play soccer in the morning, in the afternoon and at night, on the beach. Barefoot. Always barefoot. And what would they use as a ball? We were very lucky we had real balls. But sometimes we played soccer with paper balls. It could be anything, whatever we found. We just wanted to run as fast as possible and be in shape. And what did we use for goals? We used everything, sometimes even fruit trees. Or on the beach, we would put sometimes two sticks in the sand. Anything. When he was 10 years old, Reggie says he left Martinique. He left behind his parents and nine siblings. He moved to France, where he eventually began a pro career. And then he was bought by a German team, Karlsruhe. Once the US drew Germany as a first-round opponent, you see the connection? Steve became fixated on Reiji. A player that understands the German national team and understands exactly how they played, understands much more intimately than any of us ever did. What was your first impression of Steve Sampson? We had a very clear first speech. 
et que c'était voilà qui que je devais jouer comme je sais. About my experience and that I just had to play how I knew how to and not really think too much about it. Me dit est-ce que je parle anglais? He asked me if I spoke English. And what did you say? Je dis que le dans le sport on n'a pas besoin de parler, on a besoin de jouer. I told him that in sports you don't need to speak, you just need to play. So to the rest of the team, Reji was this complete stranger, an unknown quantity, who spoke no English. He began training with the team just one month before the World Cup. Here's Alexi Lalas, always the warm host. I think that there was a collective, what the hell is going on? Not because he didn't have the resume, but because it was so late in the game I knew he was left-footed and he was a left-back. That's defender Jeff Agus. Also left-footed, yeah, and also a left-back. He'd been with the national team since 1988. And along with Lalas and Marcelo Balboa, he'd been a core part of the team's defence. And so, you know, look, you look at what you've done, your body of work, and you think, was I not good enough? Or was there something else they're looking for? Actually, Agus had begun to fall out of Steve's good graces six months earlier. The team's chances to qualify right then, they looked a little dodgy. And in a match that should have been an easy win, Agus made a lazy pass that virtually handed their opponents a goal. The US had to settle for a tie. And afterwards, the ESPN camera crew captured Agus getting a slightly awkward phone call. Okay, thanks, Steve. I appreciate it. Still look, I'm st- still looking to go to France. <laughs> Great, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. But then, with the stakes even higher, next game, against Mexico, the Americans had to gut out a 0-0 tie, playing with only 10 men for much of the game because one player had been kicked out of the match for a fairly needless red card. Yeah, you guessed. It was Jeff Agus. My back was facing the line, I was receiving a ball from, I can't remember who it was, maybe Marcelo, from somebody in the back. And I just felt a player coming up from behind and I put my arms out next to me, beside me to brace for impact. And I made contact with a player and I turned around and, and I can't remember who it was in the Mexican team, but he was holding his head. I remember, because uh, I was watching. It was defender Pavel Pardo. And it's spinning around. Agus's right forearm, it clipped him right in the face. When you watch the game tape, it's an ugly infraction, but still, it doesn't look like Agu struck him intentionally. It's a kind of foul that normally gets a yellow card, a first warning, a caution, but instead... Referee gives me a red card for serious foul play, and I'm off in 30 minutes. He was suspended for the next game and fined by his own national team, US Soccer. Mostly, though, he was worried he'd permanently run afoul of Steve. You know, I'd, I was going to be 27 in my prime as a player, and, you know, if you don't make it in, at that point, then you're basically, that's it. That You know, you're on the downside of your career at 27, 28 years old, and that's probably your last opportunity. Now or never. Yeah, now or never.
This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Jeff A. Goose was no stranger to angst. He'd missed the World Cup once before in heartbreaking fashion. Almost exactly four years earlier, A. Goose was at the Federation's training camp in Southern California. The 1994 World Cup was so close, just weeks away, you could almost touch it. Or so he thought, until after a long training run on the beach, when he got a tap on the shoulder. Bora wants to talk to you. Uh-oh, he means Bora Milutinovic, the head coach of the 1994 team, Steve's predecessor. Bora wants to talk to you. Those are the fateful words that everybody doesn't want to hear on the last couple of days because you, you knew what was going to happen. So I said, okay, um, fine, let's, uh, let's talk. And Bora came over and just said, you know, we're going to release you and we're going a different way. And I, and I look back on it now and I'm like, well, you know, why couldn't have we have done this before the run? Because I could have saved me about three or four miles of pain. Um, <laughs> you know, look, you're, you, you've, you've been in this environment for a year and a half and you're just, it's blood, sweat and tears and the whole thing. And this is everything you've put your soul into. This huge event is coming in, in the span of 60 to 90 days and you're just being told you're not part of it. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's devastating. I remember getting in my car, sweaty, sand everywhere, go back home, and I'm just, just, I'm tired, but not physically tired, I'm just emotionally exhausted. Uh, I remember very distinctly, I had my gear in the corner of the room, sand all over it. Uh, get out of the shower, I look at it, and I'm like, if I just put this in the trash, i got to take the trash out, I'm going to be reminded of this again. <laughs> and there's the fireplace. I put it in the fireplace, and I just light it on fire so I don't ever have to see it again. Oh, ask yourself, who would find it cathartic to watch their training kit burn? The answer is, a pro athlete who's dreamed of glory, sacrificed years in pursuit of those dreams, come so close to making it real, and then have it snatched away at the very last. That's the kind of psychological wound that can break a man. But for Jeff Agus to suffer that trauma, and then rebound, and go again, oh, that takes a depth of tenacity which I, a mere mortal couch potato soccer fan, I just can't fathom. Meanwhile, his rival David Reji, he was also in danger of not making the final roster, but for an entirely different reason. Because just days before that final roster was due, Reji still wasn't officially an American citizen. Team officials, they were in a mad scramble to process the paperwork. And luckily for them, they brought ESPN's documentary crew along to an immigration office. You know, we had this cameraman that was following us through everything, and this was really a piece that they wanted to capture. Press officer Jim Frostlid. You know, the guy, it's almost like the Wizard of Oz, where you get to the, to the gates of Oz, and, and all of a sudden, 
they're not going to let you in. There was an INS official that basically said, you got to come back next week. And that would have meant if he couldn't get it in a week, he wouldn't be on the squad. Wouldn't be on the squad. I remember the cameraman, he was a big guy. And so he has this camera and he basically is telling the INS official, you want to tell that to ESPN right now? You know, and he's got this camera going, the lights going and the guy just kind of froze. and, And the next thing you know, he goes into the back room and, you know, one thing leads to another, and he, yep, we actually have a spot for you in this test, so you can take it now. Reiji passed his citizenship exam, thanks to an assist from the worldwide leader ESPN. And a couple of days later, he found himself starting at left-back against Kuwait in one of the last tune-up games before the World Cup. Did David Reiji earn it? Um, he didn't have to. Steve Sampson gave him that spot. Marcella Balboa. You were like, what the fuck? Uh, quite a bit, yeah. Quite a bit because, again, Agus has been the starter. You can't say that Agus was horrible. You know what I mean? He made a few mistakes. We all make mistakes. You know what I mean? And through qualifying, it happens. But to, to see him going from a starter to sitting on the bench and not even getting a sniff, not even close to getting a sniff, was, uh, was difficult. And no one, I don't think anybody thought Regis was going to make that World Cup roster. In that ESPN documentary, the one about the lead-up to the World Cup, a devastated Agus, he voiced his frustration in real time. I, I went through eight years to get here. It's just difficult to swallow that a guy can come in literally three weeks before the World Cup team has to be chosen, um, whereas other guys like myself have worked hard and long to get to where we, ha- we are right now. And... It just sort of feels like you sort of brush aside. That's how it is. With high-level sports, we're always in competition with someone. David Reiji, a man who came from a truly dog-eat-dog soccer culture. Some would say a real soccer culture, Germany. He knew that pro sports had no place for sentimentalism. But wait for it. As if this whole thing was not awkward enough already, someone, sadistically, had assigned Agus to room with Reiji, the very man who was trying to replace him. Well, it was quiet because he didn't speak a lot of English, and so we just had the TV on, and that was about it. What did um, you and Reiji watch, like Judge Judy? <laughs> um, I think we watched, like, Friends and Seinfeld, and um, it was harder to laugh, I'll be honest. Even Chandler Bing wasn't funny. (laughs) Even Chandler Bing wasn't funny. Listening to this, I've got to say, I'm not sure I could have handled this situation with half as much class as Agus did. I mean, he was an absolute mensch. Look, I, I, you know, David had to take a citizenship test. I helped David study for that, (laughs) helped him learn English uh, to try to say... Um, at least one or two sentences in English so he could pass the test. Jeff A. Goose is a very good football player. <laughs> well, that's not what he said, but I, that's what I tried to have him say. Now, David, David, um, you know, David was trying as much as he could to not only make the team, but integrate and assimilate into a group of Americans he'd never experienced before. But he didn't really understand what it was like to be an American, grow up in the United States, and we were at the same time teaching him about fighting and passion and all the things that Americans are known for. On June 2nd, 
Just two days before the team were scheduled to depart for France, Steve Sampson finally submitted his World Cup roster to FIFA, the sport's governing body. A roster that contained the names of the 22 players who'd represent the United States of America at the 1998 World Cup. Agus and Reji, they were both on the roster. Reji would start at left-back, but Agus, he'd be watching from the bench. This was, this was the way it was going to be. So you now had to accept a different role um, and do everything you could to make the team better or, you, 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 or, or create a problem. When you realized you weren't starting, what did you feel? Um, it was some level of devastation, to be honest, because, again, I go, I go through this whole um, event in 94 and coming so close, and Steve knew the whole piece of it. And on top of that, now he's bringing in new players um, uh, to the team, David, and a new formation and completely turning you know, my world upside down and I think the team's world upside down. The first practice after Reiji got his US passport, the players gave him a round of applause. Jim Frostlid remembers they also serenaded him with the national anthem. You know, I don't know whose idea it was and I'm sure not everyone wanted to do it, let's face it, you know? I will tell you, there, there, nobody had a bond with him. Nobody really, really felt, oh, geez, I'm so glad David's here. I'm so glad he passed his test. This is awesome. Let's sing. You know, we didn't know the guy. Reggie, though, he remembers it all a little differently, almost fondly. His teammates gave him a round of applause, and he celebrated like an American with a beer. They also gave me an American flag. Where, where's the flag now? <laughs> it's always above my bed. I watched your debut. Before the game, as the American national anthem played, you teared up. You can't even describe. It just came up in me. And I thought of my, about my parents right away. I always thought of my parents that told me to be myself and never looked left or right, but straight ahead and be myself. And I always said to them that I would be a soccer player. So whenever I had one of those moments, even when I signed my first contract, I thought of them immediately. That their son, who grew up on the beach barefoot, kicking paper balls at fruit trees, was now going to the World Cup. <laughs> oh, yeah. Je suis Roger Benet. American Fiasco is a production of WNYC Studios. Our team includes Joel Meyer, Emily Botine, Paula Schumann, Derek John, Starley Kine, Keegan Zemma, Ernie Intradat, Eliza Lambert, Jameson York, Daniel Guimet, Matt Boynton, Jonathan Williamson, Brad Feldman, B. Aldrich, Jeremy Bloom, Isaac Jones, and Sarah Sandbach. Joe Plourd is our technical director. Hannes Brown composed our original music. Our theme music is by Big Red Machine, the collaboration between Aaron Desner of The National and Justin Vernon of Bon Iver. Special thanks to Ali Pinnell, 
and David McLean. This episode included audio from ESPN. For more about this story, including a timeline and more, go to fiascopodcast.com. Oh, it's Rog. And before you go, I want to ask you a favour. I know, I know, you're doing me favours, like, all the time. But this one, it's important. If you love American Fiasco, please tell your friends, because in this crazy small world known as podcast, it's the only tried and true way to make a pod like this one get heard. So tell your friend who loves soccer, or your friend who's soccer curious and just about to fall in love with it during the World Cup, or your friend who just loves human disaster stories, tell them about American Fiasco, and I, Roger Bennett, will be in your debt. Again, courage.